going to be in three different passages this morning. Three different passages. It's going to be in Psalm 46 to get things uh, started. So you can start there in Psalm 46, and then I'll bounce around to Luke and to uh, into Philippians. So uh, start in Psalm 46. And I'm going to take, like I said, a few minutes this morning to share kind of a few things that have been on my heart at uh, various times this week. Some things that I hope will be a few words of uh, encouragement in the midst of what we're dealing with. And I'll be honest, I, kinda, I kind of feel a little bit silly standing up here and even uh, talking about this and, uh, and preaching as though uh, Armageddon is on the horizon, because I don't think that it is. Um, I, I do not have any desire to stand up here and add to any sense of, of fear or panic or dread, but like I said, I have no idea uh, fully what is coming. Um, what I do know is over the course of the past week, what we've witnessed is something that we've never seen before, where essentially the whole world just stopped. Schools have stopped, at least colleges have stopped. Uh, sports has stopped. Uh, and if you're going to stop sports, it better be something pretty uh, impressive because uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big deal whenever you start doing that kind of thing and loses a lot of money for a, a lot of people. There's been a national emergency that has been declared, and it feels like we are at the beginning stages of something pretty massive. How big will it get? I don't know. There's all kinds of numbers that are out there. I couldn't tell you which one is right uh, if my uh, own life depended on it. I don't know. Um, I just feel like uh, it would be good for us to pause here right at the beginning of this, or at least the beginning as, as we see it for us here, uh, and in the midst of all of this madness, and just consider a few things this morning that can maybe give us a framework for things as we go forward over the course of the next few weeks and maybe even uh, months. When I was 16 years old, I had my first car accident, so I kicked things off well. Learned how to drive. A few months later, got my first car accident. I had a brand new truck that my parents had uh, bought me, Ford Ranger, Stepside, nice little truck. Uh, very, very light. And what you get when you get a very, very light truck is you get a truck that likes to spin in circles on wet roads. Uh, and that happened to me uh, a couple of different times, actually, uh, especially being a stick shift, learning how to drive and, and, and those type of things. It was very easy for that, that truck to kind of get uh, out of control. And uh, the, 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 the first time that I had this accident, what had happened is I had uh, was driving. I promise you I was not speeding. I was not going over the speed limit. I was doing what I was supposed to be doing, but I was still inexperienced. And what happened is uh, I was coming around a curve, and then after that curve, uh, uh, there was a hill that was going up, and it started to sleet a little bit outside. It was very uh, wet, and uh, if you have driven a stick shift, you know that in order, especially in this little 1.6 liter four-cylinder truck that I had, I had to downshift and give it all I had if I was going to be able to climb this hill. Well, whenever you downshift in a uh, uh, in this in this truck, in a, in a stick shift like that, it's going to rev up your, your engine. It's going to make your wheel spin a little bit faster so that you can climb the wheel. Well, when that happened, as I was going around the curve, completely lost control. Started uh, spinning, probably spun in two or three circles. I'm not exactly sure what uh, what all happened, but uh, went over the curve into uh, a ditch, but like it has been here recently, it had been raining a lot, and so uh, it really wasn't a ditch. It was more like a, a, a culvert. It was like a mini pond, basically, that I landed in. So my truck went over. I then uh, managed to uh, turn upside down twice at least, uh, based off of what some of the witnesses that saw happened. Um, so I, I, I spun, and then I, I, I rolled twice, and then landed in this culvert, wheels down, uh, which was very fortunate, because the culvert was about six to eight feet deep. Uh, if, I had, if I had landed uh, cab down, then it probably would have uh, crushed, maybe not completely crushed, but certainly would have damaged the cab, and then I would have been submerged in this water at that point. So instead, I landed wheels down. I was able, I couldn't open the door because of the, the, the weight of the water, so I had to roll down my window uh, and then uh, crawled out of the, the car and then made it up uh, about the 10-foot the embankment up to the, the road. It was a uh, doozy of an accident for your first one. It was a, it was a big deal. 
And uh, somehow uh, I managed to walk away with zero injuries. Uh, the only thing that was, was hurt was my truck, which was totaled. It was done. Um, but that was, a, that was a big wreck, and it, it shook me up, and it really shook up my parents, as you uh, parents can imagine. Uh, it really shook them up. And so what happened just a couple of days later is my dad brought me this little thing right here. Does anybody know what this thing is? Yeah? This is not a gun, if you can't see, uh, just to calm you guys down. This is, this is not a gun. This is, uh, I don't know what to call it except for a, a, a break out of the car thingy. That's what I call it. Um, and, and what it is, is this thing is designed, it's got a, a, a point on it right here for you to be able to hit glass, and the glass will shatter so that you can get out. So if you can't get out because of water, you, you, you hit this, shatters it so that you can then escape out of the, the cab. It's also got like a, a razor blade thing in here so that you can cut your seatbelt if your seatbelt is jammed. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's a pretty useful tool, at least... I assume it would be, because I've had it now for close to 25 years, and uh, praise the Lord, I've never had to use it. Uh, I've never had to, to, to bust it out and see if it does what it claims to do. Uh, and, and here's the thing, there's some tools that are like that. Uh, I've had this thing for a long time, it's sat in my glove compartment do, uh, box, I, I actually, whenever I brought it in this morning, I was like cleaning it up, because I think it had like some Chick-fil-A sauce on it or something, uh, it, it, it was, it was kind of gross, it was, it was dirty, but it, it, it had not been used, but it, it does all the things that it, it needs to do, but other than that, it's essentially a useless tool. It doesn't really serve very many purposes, maybe you could use the, uh, the razor blade thing here to, to cut a few things, you could probably do that, but outside of that, it doesn't really do anything other than sit there for emergency situations only, and then, and only then, will you know its full use and only then will you know its full value in that moment. What I want to do is I want to read through a couple of verses. And, and here's the thing about so much of the Bible. And I don't think we fully realize this, but there's so much in the Bible that um, the, the, the text that we read, the stories that we read, what we cover work a lot like that tool. You can study them all you want. You can memorize them all you want. You can, you can see how the passage is supposed to work. You can see how this tool is supposed to work. You can know all about it, but you don't fully appreciate it until you really, really need it. And there's a lot of verses like that. There's a lot of texts like that in Scripture. Stories that you've read, some of them you know well, some of them you don't know hardly at all because you don't need them in that moment. Because in your day-to-day -day life, you don't need what those stories teach you, at least not fully. Or maybe you are able to take one part of that story, but you don't really fully understand all of the implications of that story because, frankly, you can't, you can't see how it works until you need it to work that way. So I'm going to look at three different passages that kind of serve in that same thing, that in the midst of what we're dealing with here, a national emergency where we all have to kind of reckon with a few things, maybe it kind of gives us a little bit more clarity about what these passages mean. So the first is Psalm 46. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 this morning. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. So this morning, that passage can take on a little bit of a different feel. Because if you read that passage in the context of a life that's just kind of trucking along, what you generally think is, oh, that's really good. God, God is big and powerful. But in the midst of what we're dealing with right now, what we're going through uh, right now, then that begins to take on a little bit more of a personal meaning to us. It begins to take on a little bit more of something that instead of we read it and we say, oh, that's nice, now we can read it and we can run to it. 
to be able to look at this and to say that God is our refuge and our strength. <clears throat> that is definitely where we want to begin this morning. For us to remember that there is nothing, <clears throat> nothing bigger than God or out of his control this morning. For so many, there is fear that comes in moments like this. Maybe you share that fear. Maybe you think that that's silly this morning. I'm not sure where you stand on that. Judging by my Facebook feed, it's about 50-50 down the middle on where people are at. Um, so I don't know where you stand on that. So I don't, I don't know how much fear you have. But there is fear that comes with this. And the, the, the problem with the fear that comes with this for so many is it's less about sickness or even death. The fear is more about the unknown or maybe even just the inability to control things. Anything that moves outside of our control, anything that moves outside of our ability to manipulate it, to control it, to subdue it, to be over it, anything like that can be uh, <clears throat> something that creates fear for us. The reality is that so many of us, what we're afraid of in the midst of this is less about sickness and disease and more about our inability to control our own comfort and our own level of security. I want to make sure this morning that as we talk about these things, that whenever we talk about fear, we put fear in the right category. You see, fear is not off limits for Christians. I've heard pastors say that before, and I just don't think that that lines up with Scripture. Fear is not something that's off limits for Christians. It's a perfectly reasonable thing to be fearful at times. It's the follow-up questions that we need to be careful about. What are we afraid of? Why are we afraid? If our fear is driven by our inability to effectively be God in the moment, then that teaches us a lot about our hearts. If you're buying 30 canisters of Clorox and 100 hand sanitizers and for some reason all the toilet paper that you can find, if you're doing that because you think you need to be in control, well, that's going to tell you a lot about your heart. Because you're not so much worried about a virus so much as you are worried about losing control of your environment and losing control of what's going on, maybe in your own house. As Christians, we should be the first to speak up when the world seems to have uh, slipped out of the hands of those around us. As Christians, we should be the first ones to be able to step in when it seems as though the world is completely out of control and be able to say, we do not fear when the world feels out of control because it may be out of our control. It may be out of government officials' control. It may be out of the control of the, the doctors, but it is not out of God's control. The reality is we should be um, above all people used to what it means to live life when we are not in control because the reality is when we came to Christ, we gave our lives to him and we told him, you are now fully in control of my life. We should be used to that. So the flip side of this is that we uh, don't panic whenever things seem to be out of control because we do know who is control. We do not fear because we know that things are not left in the hands of uh, random happenstance of the universe. Things are not left into the, the whim of just kind of how things play out. Nor are things left in the hands of an angry, moody, temper-ridden God. Our God is slow to anger, abounding in love, and ready to forgive those who would seek Him. A God that has, as we said last week, stood in the gap for our sins and made propitiation for us. So friends, as we get started this morning and as we consider what the last week is and what, this coming weeks behold, or what the coming weeks hold for us, I just want to say fear is okay. You don't need to be ashamed of that, but you don't have to live in that. We just need to make sure and we need to understand what it is that we're really afraid of. Because the one that loves us is fully in control of what's going on right now. Next passage I want to look at is Luke chapter 10. So if you want to turn over to Luke chapter 10, 
Uh, maybe a passage that's not the first one that comes to your mind uh, in light of uh, what we've been dealing with, but it's one that I've been dwelling on for whatever reason uh, all week long. And I'm just going to read. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. If you've been around church at all, you know this story. Uh, but I'm going to read it for us anyway this morning and make a few applications for us. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to the place where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So this is a passage that we know well, the story of the Good Samaritan. And it's one that every preacher has spent time on. We've talked about it here once or twice uh, before at Providence. It's not a uh, break-only-in-case-of-emergency type of passage, right? If you, if you were listening there at the beginning of my introduction, this doesn't really fit that category because, after all, uh, we know this passage, and we've heard it, and we've uh, applied it. But I think the more I have studied this, the more I have realized that perhaps we don't just break this one out in case of emergency, uh, but at least in my own heart, in the midst of what we're dealing with, it's taken on a few uh, more pointed applications uh, for me. It's really, I think, in these type of situations where we get a little bit fuller view of what this text is about. Now, if you've heard this text preached, the application is probably something to the effect of help everyone, even if they're different from you. And then they'll drive in on this idea that this, this good Samaritan would have been an oxymoron. And, and really the focus is the fact that, uh, that, that this good Samaritan stepped up whenever these other religious people passed by. And that is a perfectly uh, good application. I have preached this and made that application. But in these moments, this text takes a little bit of a new uh, light. You see, it's easy for us to encourage one another to help somebody else when times are good. It's easy for us to say, go and help this person when you're doing well and the other person is doing poorly. That makes a lot of sense for us. But the equation changes just a little bit. The math changes just a little bit whenever what we're talking about is the midst of uh, whether it be a crisis, a national emergency, or uh, just general fear, or maybe you're both not doing so well. It changes just a little bit. Because what we miss in this story is what it would have cost each of these men that walked on by. Each of them, had they stopped to help, would have at a minimum been wrecking his day. When you see what the Good Samaritan did, he, he, he used oil to, uh, to, uh, to, to bandage his wounds. He used his own animal to take him to the innkeeper. He used his own money to pay for him to be able to stay with the innkeeper. He offered to, to pay his tab if he needed anything else to get healthy. It would have cost him, at a minimum, it would have cost him his day. It would have made him late for whatever appointment he was going to. It may have made him miss the meal that he was going to eat with friends and with family. It may have made him miss out on going to watch the Jerusalem High basketball game as the Samaritans played and their big rivals. It may have cost him, it may have cost him that. But he decided to stay and to, to help. You see, it would have made each of these guys miss out on something that would have been big. It would have been highly inconvenient. 
But not only that, it would have put each of them at risk. You see, the, the, this, this guy, this hypothetical guy laying in the street that's been beat up and left, left half dead, there's no guarantee that those robbers aren't sitting around the corner hiding in, a, in, in another ditch waiting for somebody to come by and do exactly what this good Samaritan did. Your assumption as you read the text, because you know how it works out, is that those guys have gone on. But there's no guarantee of that. They may have been in a strategic place where they knew there was no one else around and they could have jumped in and, and, and taken on whoever stopped to help. They could have been using this guy that was beat up kind of as bait to be able to stop. So it would have been inconvenient, but it would have been very, very dangerous as well. It would have been risky. So why should these other guys stop by and help? Why should they stop and put their own lives at risk? There's a good chance they could be next. Why would they stop? Why should they risk their own lives? And listen, this is a fair question to ask. Now, I know we know the story of the Good Samaritan and the one that Jesus praises, but that's a fair question to ask. Why, why should I do this? My family depends on me. These, these men, their families would have depended on them. It's a fair question to ask, and it's one that Christians have been forced to reckon with since the infancy of our faith. You see, for us, what we've witnessed is this week and what we're dealing with is pretty surreal, Right? We've never seen something like this where our whole society just kind of falls apart and where our whole society, at least just at the very at best, just gets put on hold. But the reality is this probably should happen a lot more often than it does. The fact that it doesn't, I think, is an evidence of God's grace that we take totally for granted, that this doesn't happen constantly to us. For Christians, this is nothing new. This has been going on for centuries. This is new for us, but not for the church at large and the church in history. If you go back to the second, the third, the sixth centuries, what you'll see is that there were two things that caused the Christian faith to grow during that time. Two big things. One was persecution, and two was plagues. Now, the Christian faith saw a, a spike whenever the government kind of changed its stance, but two of the things that grew the Christian faith and grew those that ad adhered to being called a Christian the most were when Christians were persecuted and whenever society was affected by the plague. Now, why in the world would that be the case? You see, the plagues gave Christians a chance to talk about their theology that made sense out of all this suffering. And it also gave Christians a chance to put into practice what Jesus had commanded, to love others, to show mercy, to, as he says here, to go and do likewise, even to those who weren't their friends, even to those who weren't fellow Christians, even to those who had nothing to do with the church. The church was able to step in and say, I'll step in here and help. While everyone else ran from the disease, the Christians ran to the sick and to the dying, and people noticed. In the 1500s, Martin Luther uh, was at the town of Wittenberg. We talked about Martin Luther uh, a couple years ago with the, the Reformation, and uh, his town of Wittenberg had been overrun by the plague. The mayor and the city officials had begun to leave, and they had urged Martin that he should leave as well. They had said, you need to get out of here, protect yourself. And Luther said, no, instead, I'm going to stay, and I'm going to minister to those that are sick and to those that are dying. He wrote a long essay. The whole thing is really worth your reading, if you would like. But he wrote a long essay, essay and after he did, and, and talked about why he decided to stay, here's just a, a small piece of what it is that he said. He said, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us, and then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid, uh, avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus, perchance, inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me, and I have done what he is expected to expected of me. So I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. 
If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is not, neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. He goes on to talk about how Christians are the type of person that, whenever they're, that see whenever their neighbor's house is on fire, they go help him out. When they see that someone is in need, they step into that place. Now you don't, you're, I, I love what he says here. He said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not foolish. I'm not going to just go and do this thing and, 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 and put my own self at such a complete risk. I'm going to fumigate. I'm going to take medicine. I'm going to try to protect myself. But I'm also not going to run away from this thing. If God wants to find me, surely he will. Now is the time for us as Christians to make obvious where our faith stands. Now, perhaps you're not called to go to the ER and to, hold, and to start handing out uh, water bottles uh, every day. Maybe that's not what you're called to do. I think that would be, uh, as Luther puts it, foolhardy for us to do that. But you can show that you care for others. And that is the bottom line call for every one of us as Christians, that we, first and foremost, show that we care for others over and above ourselves. That is the bottom line for us as Christians. We are not called to self-preservation first, but to self-denial. Those of you that keep repeating this line that this is only dangerous for the elderly and for those with underlying health problems, you need to understand that that line and that kind of just refrain over and over is not only foolish, because as I said, this is not primarily about keeping you from getting sick. It's about keeping everybody else from getting sick. It's also disrespectful. And while it's true that maybe you won't get sick, it could be that because you decide that you've got to be a part of uh, some massive large gathering or you've got to be at this place or whatever, and you don't, you don't kind of stay where you're at, that you unknowingly make others sick. And it, and, and it could infect all kinds of others. Personally, this is something we have to be very aware with at our house right now. My wife is uh, uh, immune compromised right now because of the medicine that she's taken, because of what she's been dealing with, with the underlying health problems. And so every time that I hear somebody say, it only affects the elderly and the, the people with health problems, I think it only affects my wife and my grandma. Well, that's pretty important to me, right? So we have, to, we have to live as though those are the people that we are more concerned about than we are about even our own selves. And it's something as simple as just observing some of the things that government officials are telling us to do. So today, whenever we're done here, I will probably go to the pharmacy and pick up prescriptions for my wife. I will probably go to the grocery store and I, will, uh, and I will pick up some food so that we will have plenty of food throughout the week. And I will make sure that I do what I can to try to care for her, but I also will try to make sure that, that, that I pay attention to those that are around me. Right? So I would just encourage you to do the same. Just use wisdom in all of this. Don't take unnecessary risk or even if it's not risky for you, what may be risky for someone else. Live your life as though others are more important than you are. It's a simple call for us as Christians. And finally, Philippians chapter 1 is the last text this morning. Philippians chapter 1. And I'll be honest with you, I wrestled with whether or not I would even talk about this at all or whether I would just end it right here. Uh, but I, I feel like I should bring this up again. I'm not trying to induce panic or fear in anyone. Uh, I was conflicted over my desire to read this because, frankly, uh, I don't think that we're on the, the brink of this horrible, terrible thing. Um, but I think this is important for us to consider uh, in the days ahead, and it's important for you to realize that this is a great place for us to be able to talk. So, Philippians chapter 1. What then? Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul's words should be something that we come to a lot, and it is absolutely one of those things that you bust open in times when things are hard because you can say over and over in the midst of your fear, what's the worst that can happen to me? The worst that can happen to me is that I will be with Christ. For Christians, that is a marvelous thing for us to hold on to. So I don't want to read this passage this morning as though we're all about to die. We are not. But I do want to read this passage this morning as though we are all going to die. You're probably not going to die from this virus, but you're going to die from something. We all are. And we would do well to remember that. And as Christians, we would do well whenever the rest of the culture is talking about sickness and death for us not to run from that conversation, but for us to engage and run to that conversation. Because that conversation, unlike almost any other one that this culture has, that conversation is a conversation where we can step in and we can say, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to live in fear of this. You don't have to see that as the, the end. It's not this big, terrible monster. I can tell you how the sting of death has been removed. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you about how he died on a cross. Let me tell you about, we're, a few weeks we're going to celebrate Easter Sunday. Let me tell you what, Easter, what, what happened on Easter. As Christians, man, that is... That is made for us to be able to step into that conversation. We would do well not to run from that. Death is not this terror-filled monster staring us down. Death's stinger has been removed. Its hopelessness has now been replaced with our greatest hope. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, some of y'all have no idea what that is, some of you guys uh, might know what this is, but uh, uh, just a, a document for, for teaching about the Christian faith, question and answer style thing. The very first question of it, it says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's, that's a message we get to take to people. And we get to talk about that hope, that in this life and in the next, and death is not the end. Friends, we will die someday, and we do not like to talk about that. But as Christians, that is a marvelous opportunity. So don't miss that opportunity in the coming weeks with your family, with your friends, with your coworkers, with your kids. Talk about that, engage in that. I told you earlier that plagues were a time when Christians saw, this, uh, saw the, 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 some of the greatest numbers of conversions in our history. So, some of that is because people saw how unafraid Christians were to uh, engage with those that were dying and were so unafraid of death that they bravely risked their lives for those that were dying. But it wasn't their bravery that inspired those Christians. It was their theology. The plagues were a time when the Christian faith made so much sense to the world. It, it, it made so much sense because they could go to the world, to a world like our own that otherwise didn't stop to consider what life may hold or, or, or they just went about their day doing their thing and then the plague made them stop and the Christian faith gave an answer whenever they stopped and said, I can, I can speak to this. I have, I have a message for you to hear. The theology that the Christian faith gave to people in those days was that this world was broken, cursed by sin, full of death and suffering. And that 
that message resonated. That made sense to people. They, 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 they got it maybe for the first time. And it was a theology that gave us categories for suffering and assured us that suffering was never wasted. And man, that was a comfort for people in those times as they saw their friends and their family dying. They could say that this suffering wasn't for, for naught. It gave hope. And there was a theology that said not only did God use this suffering for our good, but that God himself suffered on behalf of man, and that too gave comfort. And a theology that said that there was more to life. There was more to life than what we saw here and what we see around us, and that this world, broken as it is, could be made right, and we could be made right with God because of his grace. And that all made sense to people, and it all still makes sense today. Because what's been true over all the centuries and what's true today is there will always be sickness in a broken world. There will always be suffering in a broken, sinful world. But there will always be hope because of what Christ has done and because of what God will do. Friends, this is Christianity. And this is our posture and this is our stance in the coming days. So what we're going to do now... I want to open up a time of prayer. If you'll go ahead and put, that, uh, put the, the list up here. What we're going to do is I'm going to move this mic here. I'm going to move this over here. We're just going to enter into a time of prayer. I'm going to open us up, and then we will open this mic uh, to anyone that would like to come up and be able to, to share. You can read some scriptures. Or you can uh, pick one of these topics here to pray about. We're going to make sure we pray about those. Or you can just pray about something else that God has laid uh, on your heart. So I'm going to open this up. I'm going to pray. And then the mic will be open for anyone that would like to come. Let's pray. Oh, sorry. Also, before you, before you bow. If anyone would like, we don't do this a lot, but if anybody would like to come up here and they'd like to pray, I know it's concrete floors, not the most comfortable. Uh, but if you would like to come up and, uh, and pray here, uh, you're welcome to do that. Or if you'd like to just stay out there, you're welcome to do that as well. So let's pray. Father, this morning we come to you, some of us fearful, and frankly, some of us arrogant. And uh, we repent of both of those. And instead, we come to you and we, we ask that you would give us hope, that you would replace our arrogance with humility, you would replace our fil- fearfulness with, with boldness and in, in, uh, confidence in who you are. We do not know what the days ahead hold for us, Father, but I pray that that would not be a source of fear for us, but that would be a source of, 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 of confidence to come to you and before you. Father, this morning we do not take for granted the ability to gather together to be able to say these things, to be able to sing these things, to be able to call out to you. And Father, I pray that you would remind us of this gift that we have as the church to be able to gather. So Father, I lift up these people that are here. I lift up those that are at home, that are with their families. I lift up those that are uh, all around the world, that are all confronting this at this moment. I just ask that you would show us and give us hope. pray this morning even now we come to you first thing and we just want to cry out that you would halt the spread of this virus not just here in the U.S. but all around the world in a world where we can seem so disconnected we can seem so far from one another uh, this virus shows us just how how tied we are and how the, the common bond that we all share and the frailty that life is. So Father, I pray that you would stop it spread, stop it spread here in the U.S., stop it spread here in Jefferson County and in Tennessee, but also that you would, you would totally spare countries from ever seeing this.
Father, I pray that you would protect those that are vulnerable from its effects. Father, I pray that that those that are healthier, that those that even uh, contract this but don't, don't, don't end up in a hospital, that you would just allow them to stay home, to, to can keep that spread down. And Father, I pray that you would give us a cure for it, even now. That, that maybe even something this terrible would result in, in, in major breakthroughs to cure this and the flu and anything else you would see fit. So, Father, we ask that you would just intervene, that you would shock the scientists, that you would shock the watching world that sees this thing spreading and leave them with questions that say, we don't know why it stopped, but that we would know that you stepped in and that you stopped it. Pray for the healthcare workers that are working long hours, not knowing if the people they're helping will make it. Lord, that weighs heavy on my heart. But Lord, you are good. So I pray for them. Uh, pray that you keep them, you know, going, Lord, to give them the wisdom and to give them just hope, Lord. I pray for the ones they're taking care of, and I hope that they get better. Pray for the people that they're out of jobs and for all these cancellations and stuff. And I know money's not the most important thing, but it does put stress on families and anxieties on people about their money. But I pray that you just let them know that they were never in charge of it anyway, and that God has a plan for whatever it is. Just help comfort them and be with them through this, Lord. Habakkuk three seventeen and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor a fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Lord, help us to rejoice in you regardless of the world around us. Help us to take joy in you because you are our salvation. Lord, I just uh, want to pray for our nation and maybe the idea that this sickness can be a source of unity between a lot of different factions, a lot of different people, um, not least our government. Um, so I pray, Lord, that that Christ would be uh, would be revealed and especially amongst his people as we uh as we address all these situations and lord forgive me for being cavalier in my attitude towards towards this sickness lord i pray that we can all heed tony's wisdom and be uh 
humble towards uh, not only the sickness, but other people uh, responses to the sickness in, in our community. And I pray for our community here, especially since that's, that's where we live. And I pray uh, that our community would, I guess, have low numbers and that it wouldn't spread and that people would uh, respect that. Amen. God, we just pray for our, our leaders, our government, systems that you have put in place and ordained to make decisions for us and on our behalf. God, forgive us when we make things like this virus political. Forgive us when we think flippantly about something that is so terribly serious and impacting millions of people throughout the world. Forgive us for our narrow-mindedness that, that says that this doesn't affect us when your church, brothers and sisters of ours, are suffering. Forgive us when we think light of when others are suffering. I just thank you for people smarter than me, people in the healthcare industry that are fighting, sleeping little to help, to prepare people in places where this hasn't yet affected in the hopes that we'll minimize the damage. Help us to be respectful of the civil and governmental authorities over us as they try to do the best they can to keep us safe and to protect those who will come after us. We thank you for your goodness in our lives that we live in a place, we live in a part of the world that has the access to the kind of health care that can respond and I'm sure we'll all we'll, history will we'll tell the story we'll all look back and second guess and, and, and expect that things should have been done faster or better help us to be a people of hope the point others not to uh, the evils or the, or, the, or the goodness of government but of your goodness help us to to have two feet squarely planted in your kingdom and not the, the parts of this world which are fading away. First Peter 5, 7 says, cast your cares on me, uh, cast your anxiety on me, for you care for me. Father, I pray for the children right now. I pray for the ones that are affected big time by their parents being sick, um, by their households living in fear. Father, I pray for these children to have us to look to, to point them to you. Father, I pray that our children um, can rest in the assurance that we have and what the future holds for us, whether it's here or in your kingdom soon. Father, we pray for the time that we have, possibly extended time at home. That is a time to reconnect. Father, it's a time to just share in each other, um, look to your word for confidence and assurance teach our children what it means to serve others. We pray for the patience of parents while we are at home, 
um, and just for a loving attitude to know that in a lot of ways this is a grace you're giving us with the time with each other. I pray that we take it as preciousness and um, use this time to to teach them and uh, to grow in our walk with you. Father, uh, I pray that uh, one day when I'm teaching history and however many years I get to retire and uh, that I can go back and I can say there was this crazy thing in 2020 and everybody was crazy but the church was giving. Everybody was hoarding but it was the church that was giving. It was them that saw it as a battle cry to spread your message and that that we don't live in fear of that, that we know that uh, God has given us uh, his, his armor and all that armor doesn't protect our backs because we're not made to run and that we just um, use wisdom in that and that uh, we, we're we seen as the ones that were on the front lines with everybody and uh, I just pray that that's how history views this and that this is ultimately leads to more people knowing you and uh, loving you and coming to you and that's what that's the message that we want to send. That's the message we want to be as a church. Father, I just pray that you would knit our hearts together with those in this room, those uh, that are part of this family that are not uh, here this morning and with Christians around the world, that we would cry out to you, that we would uh, humble ourselves, come before you, confess our inadequacies, but also confess your power and your might and majesty. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness to us in ways that we do not even know. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.